Have you ever gone on a road trip before, perhaps with your family? A question will arise early on, especially if you have children in the car. The question will arise frequently. The question will come up sometimes even in an obnoxious, whiny tone that is meant to irritate the parents. And of course that question is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, new parents or well-meaning parents will oftentimes try to encourage their children and say something along the lines of, we're almost there, just a little bit further, I think it's around the corner. I think that's a bad idea. See, when our kids were little and they would ask that question, are we there yet? Uh, my response was no. We're not almost there yet. We're not even close to being there yet. In fact, if you don't stop your whiny, obnoxious tone, I'm gonna keep driving this car for the rest of your life. We are never gonna get there. And that might be one of the reasons why our kids are still in therapy. Are we there yet? That seems to be the question on people's hearts and minds these days. It was just a few weeks ago um, that uh, you and I were going about our lives. Uh, everything was normal. And uh, then all of a sudden we started hearing murmurings about uh, rumblings of problems out there. And we thought to ourselves, well, this could never really impact us. And then just five weeks ago, the president declared a national emergency for a pandemic, a coronavirus. Well, what's that? And then on March 22nd, uh, the governor of Illinois invited us as residents of this state to shelter at home. And we thought, whoa, this is really serious. And to give you a little perspective, uh, that was not even one month ago that we have been sheltering at home. And, and I know many of us are uh, stir-crazy, many of us are anxious, many of us are wondering and tired, and, and we're asking that same question that our kids ask on a long road trip, are we there yet? Have the numbers peaked to the point where we can start to get back to our regularly scheduled lives? Hey, welcome to Faith Lutheran Church. My name is Brian Goak. I'm the pastor here at Faith, and I want to welcome you uh, and invite you to go on this journey. Today we're beginning a brand new sermon series called Into the Wilderness. Into the Wilderness. Now, if you have ever gone into the wilderness, perhaps you've been to Glacier uh, in Montana. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Or maybe uh, you've been to the Great Smokies in Tennessee, and you've been able to explore a little bit into the wilderness. You know uh, that the wilderness is oftentimes vast. You know that the wilderness is uncertain, it's unpredictable. The wilderness is wild, it's untamed. And the deeper you go into the wilderness, the more you ask yourself the question, when is this gonna end? When am I gonna get to the end of the wilderness, to civilization, that which is tamed, that which is under control, uh, that which uh, human beings can watch over and take care of, that which feels safe to me. 
And so for the next few weeks, we're going to go on this journey, this metaphorical journey of into the wilderness. Because it's just been a few weeks now that the, our global community uh, has moved into the wilderness metaphorically. And each week we're going to look at what it means, uh, a different aspect of living, surviving, and even thriving in the wilderness. You know, one of the great things about God's Word, about Scripture, is that it's filled with stories about God's people who have been in the wilderness, both metaphorically but also literally. <clears throat> now, you might recall uh, that one of the most famous stories uh, of Scripture, of God's people traveling through the wilderness, comes from the book of Exodus. And if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to go to Exodus 3. And to kind of set this up a little bit for you, God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved in, an, an, in a nation called Egypt. And they're miserable, and they can't set themselves free. And so they cry out to God and say, God, we need help. Please come rescue us. So God shows up, and he comes to a man by the name of Moses. So let's look at Exodus 3 and hear what God has to say uh, through this story into the wilderness. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. God saw that through, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed heard and seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down <clears throat> to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out uh, of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, there's several really powerful ideas in this uh, encounter between God and Moses. And the first thing is that, that uh, God actually knows what's going on. Think about this. The creator of the universe, the one who created everything, he knows every single detail about his uh, vast and amazing creation. And he hears uh, the cries of his people and he's moved to compassion. And God actually comes down into his creation to live and to communicate and be among his people. 
And God says, I've heard your cry and I'm going to do something about your enslavement. I'm going to come rescue you. And, and then God explains how he's going to do it. He says, I'm going to take the Israelites uh, out of Egypt. And then I'm not only going to just take them out of Egypt, I'm going to take them uh, to a, a remarkable place. It, it calls it a place flowing with milk and honey, which is just another poetic way of saying, I'm going to take you to the best real estate uh, that you could ever imagine. It's such a wonderful place. And the Israelites are thinking, this is awesome. This is amazing. This is wonderful. And we've heard about this place uh, while we have been enslaved. And the good news is it's not very far. In fact, uh, I brought a map here uh, this morning that I wanted to show you. Uh, the place um, that, that God is going to take them, uh, it's, it's, it's over here. It's, it's the promised land. And so as God's people are living uh, here in, uh, uh, in Egypt, enslaved in, in the Goshen Valley, they only need to travel about 200 miles. This, this is a travel route. It's called uh, the, the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. And they only need to travel about 200 miles. That's like from Bloomington to, uh, I, I don't know, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it would take them about four to six weeks uh, on that travel caravan. And God's people, they are thrilled out of their minds that God has heard their cries and that God has come to rescue them. And so God does uh, what God does. God sends uh, uh, 10 plagues, 10 uh, pandemics uh, to, to change the heart of Pharaoh, to let God's people go. And, uh, and so they're all ready to go. They got their bags packed. They're ready to roll. And I'm going to invite us now uh, to fast forward 10 chapters in, uh, in Exodus. We're going to now look at Exodus 13. Exodus 13, beginning with verse 17. By the way, aren't you glad we're only dealing with one pandemic? God's people uh, were dealing with, they had to navigate 10 pandemics, one after another. So, I mean, it, it could always get worse. You know what I'm saying? So Exodus 13, um, the uh, Israelite U-Haul uh, truck is packed. It's ready to go, loaded. Uh, and, the, and, and the Israelites, they're thinking, we are ready to go uh, to travel on the Via Maris, the way of the sea, to, to this land that God's going to take us to. So Exodus 13, beginning with verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was shorter. For God thought if people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now this is a very strange twist in the story. Because in the people's minds, they're thinking we are now on easy street. God's going to take us the most direct route to get to the promised land. But God says, I've got other plans for you. You're not ready uh, to go into the promised land just yet. I'm going to take you somewhere else. See, the, the, the Israelites, they have this incredible navigation system. And it's, it's called a pillar of cloud and fire. 
And all they have to do is follow uh, this navigation system of a pillar of cloud and fire, and it's going to lead them to the promised land. Now, the problem with this navigation system on this day is uh, they're thinking we need to go northeast to the promised land. And unfortunately, the pillar of cloud and fire said, we're going south. And in that moment, the Israelites had to decide for themselves, which way are we going to go? Are we going to follow what we know is the way, the Via Maris, uh, to the Promised Land? Or are we going to follow the pillar of cloud and fire and go the direction God is calling us to go? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, when I put an address in my GPS, uh, and I think I have a pretty good idea, a general idea of which direction I'm supposed to go, and, uh, and my GPS says, uh, nope, I want you to go that way, all of a sudden I've got this internal dilemma going on. Which way do I go? Do I actually follow the GPS or do I go my own way? And this is exactly the problem and the dilemma for the Israelites. God is calling them to go south a particular way. Um, and they don't understand it. And so the question is, is, is the same question for you and me. Do we follow God even when we don't understand the direction that he's taking us? Now, the other thing you need to know is that this is no small detour. I want to show you on the map again uh, what God is actually calling uh, the people to do. See, they want to go northeast, and God says, no, we're going to go south through the Sinai Peninsula, and we are going to spend a lot of time traveling around, around, and around. See, this would have taken four to six weeks, the easy route, the, the, the Via Maris, four to six weeks. This route that God would actually take them on would take 40 years. 40 years. Now, if, if you've been around the Bible a little bit, you know that 40 is, is kind of a, it's a biblical number, right? Uh, the number 40 shows up time and time again throughout uh, Scripture. You might recall that Noah was on the ark 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, you might remember uh, that King David was on the throne for 40 years. You might remember uh, that that one time when uh, Elijah was uh, running away from Queen Jezebel, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days. Time and time again, the number 40 shows up in Scripture. And it shows up here. It says they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And what the Bible is telling us is that 40 is not necessarily a literal number. What it really means, whenever you see the number 40 in Scripture, it means a really long time. And so God says, I'm going to take you through the wilderness for a really long time. You know, the truth is, the wilderness is a place that we often spend a lot of time in, a long time, in fact, a, a much longer time than we had originally planned on being in the wilderness. 
See, long before COVID-19 showed up, some of you were already uh, on a wilderness journey that seemed like it was going on far too long. You've been, a, uh, you've been in a wilderness experience of, of a strained or a broken relationship. And then you're thinking, oh great, now we've got this physical distancing thing that we've got to deal with on top of all that. And I've got to stay at home and how do I communicate and all my routines have been upset. Even before the coronavirus uh, showed up, some of you had been in a wilderness experiencing, experience, uh, battling a financial hardship, and this has just blown everything out of the water for some of you. Before you had a razor-thin margin financially, now you've got zero margin financially, and the wilderness seems to get more wild and more untamed, and you're asking yourself, God, where are you? Do you even know what's going on in my life. Some of you before the coronavirus, you were in a wilderness experience dealing with a health issue. For years, some of you have been dealing with health issues and you've been going through the journey in the wilderness and now all of a sudden this. And you're even more susceptible to the coronavirus because your immune system is weak. Some of you before the coronavirus were struggling with mental health issues, with addictions, that daily life was hard enough and now all uh, the routines and the, the helps that have been put in place to help you through that, it's gone. You're like, really God? How much deeper, how much wilder, how much more untamed does this wilderness actually get? We could go on and on. See, the wilderness didn't just begin a few weeks ago. For many of you, the wilderness has been going on for a good long time. And the wilderness is that place where we wander around, we look around, we ask ourselves, God, do you even know what's going on in my life? Do you even know the struggle? Do you even know the hardship? Because you look around and everything seems wild and out of control. But the remarkable thing as we read story after story in Scripture is that God specializes in the wilderness. God speaks to His people in the wilderness. In fact, this is where oftentimes uh, God's people encounter Him in the wilderness. And He does some of His greatest work in people uh, through the wilderness. God says, I haven't forgot about you. I'm just trying to get away, uh, get you away from all the noise of civilization so you can really hear me, so we can talk, because it's quieter in the wilderness. And I think you can see me just a little bit clearer in the wilderness. Oftentimes we think about our wilderness experiences, a place where God is punishing us. But God comes up to us oftentimes and says, I'm not punishing you. Uh, I'm just here to, so that we can talk in a deeper, more connected way. And so God's people find themselves in the wilderness. And they ask themselves, and we ask ourselves, why are we going through the wilderness? Why do we even have to be here at all? We learn from the text in Exodus 13 why God took them into the wilderness. It says, For God thought if the people face war, read into this, if they face challenge, if they face difficulty, 
They may change their minds and return to Egypt. See, God understood that God's people, the Israelites, were not ready to get to the promised land just yet. Remember, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They still thought like slaves. They still behaved uh, like people who were imprisoned. And so whenever they would see any kind of adversity, they would turn around and they would want to run back home where it was safe and predictable. That's what slaves do. That's what people who are in prison do, is they turn around and run back. They weren't ready. See, God could have taken them uh, the, the, the Via Maris, the, the way of the sea, the, the short route, the easy route. But God says, you're not ready. And so God says, I'm going to take you on the long, the windy, the roundabout road through the wilderness to prepare you. Several years ago, uh, I don't know who it was, uh, came up with this idea, but I really like it a lot. Uh, and, the, and the concept is simply this, that it took God... Uh, one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 400 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Let me say that again. It took one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 400 years to get Egypt out of Israel. What does that mean? Let me try and translate what I think that means for you and for me. It means that uh, once you were dead in your sins, that you were enslaved, that you and I, we had nowhere to go, no way uh, to free ourselves. And God, out of his great love for you and for me, came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He walked among us. He lived among us. He taught among us. And then he willingly suffered and died on a cross for you and me so that you and I could experience freedom. And then he rose from the grave and we were set free from all of our sins. In that moment of faith, when we surrendered our lives, God says, I have set you uh, free. I have made you holy. I have sanctified you. I have positionally taken you from one, one place and put you in this place. I have set you apart. That's what sanctification means. It, it means to set aside. And so positionally, we are now free people. But the problem is we still think like slaves. We still behave like uh, we're imprisoned. And God says, I love you so much. And even though you've got this new position, this new place, this, this sanctification that you are truly holy, I'm going to spend uh, the, the rest of your life walking alongside you, uh, making you progressively uh, sanctified. I'm going to uh, help you to think like a free person. I'm going to help you to behave like a free person because that doesn't just happen when you've been released you, uh, from prison. You've got you've to be trained. Uh, you've got to go through a process. Uh, and this is a lifelong journey. And oftentimes this is a journey through the wilderness where we truly, little by little, uh, one day at a time, uh, start thinking and living uh, uh, like true free people that God has uh, 
made us uh, in that moment uh, when we were sanctified and, and surrendered our lives to Jesus. I think that's what, what's going on in the story here. And I think that's why God is taking uh, his people uh, through the long roundabout way toward the promised land. You know, this Saturday, uh, I was scheduled uh, to run uh, the Nashville Marathon. And uh, it would have been my 26th uh, marathon. I've been training for about five months now. And, and like everything else, uh, it was canceled. And uh, so I'm, you know, I continue to run. And uh, uh, I, I've been running, as many of you know, for more than three decades and uh, early on, I really enjoyed running a lot. I met a lot of people. Uh, I learned a lot about myself. Um, and it was just a, it was a great activity for me. And it was just truly, genuinely enjoyable. Uh, but I got to tell you, about 10 years ago, I really stopped enjoying uh, long distance uh, running. And uh, it actually just became kind of painful. And, uh, but I keep doing it. And uh, people have asked me, well, if, if you don't enjoy it, why do you keep doing it? Well, the answer for me uh, is, is kind of simple. Um, and it's, it's, it's simply this. Let me try and describe it for you. See, in a marathon, um, it, I, I love the first five miles. The first five miles are great because it's all pure adrenaline. It's standing at the starting line with a group of people, many of who have never uh, run this distance before, and, and you can just feel the excitement and the adrenaline in the air. And so when the gun goes off, uh, you're running for those first five miles and you just, your, your whole body is filled with this adrenaline and it's just this excitement. It's, it's like a party of people running through the streets. But then after about uh, uh, mile five, the adrenaline wears off and uh, I kind of settle into uh, rhythmic breathing and I think, okay, this is going to be uh, the, the easy part of the run, right? And so uh, from about mile five uh, to the halfway point, 13.1, I'm just uh, thinking about my breathing. I'm just thinking about uh, a steady pace, not trying to go too fast. The adrenaline's gone. Uh, I'm no longer, you know, uh, all pumped up. It's just, okay, I'm just going to run. And so I run and I'm just thinking about that 13.1 halfway mile mark. I'm not thinking any further down the road at that point in time. So the 13.1 mile marker is a great mile marker uh, because at that point in time, I know I've, I'm halfway done. And I think to myself, I play this mind game, okay, I just ran 13.1, which means that I know I can run 13.1. That's all I got left. Instead of counting up, I'm going to just start counting the miles down. But when I get to 13.1, something is going on in my body. Uh, I've stopped several times at the aid stations, uh, not stopped, but I've, I've gotten liquid uh, along the way. And, uh, uh, but, but I'm thirsty. I'm starting to get a little bit dehydrated. And uh, my body's starting to get a little bit tired, uh, fatigued uh, all the way around. And, uh, and, and so what I do, uh, I decide at mile 13.1 is that from here on out, <clears throat> I'm just going to look for the next mile. 
That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to think about these next uh, 13 miles. It's just the next mile. So I'm just going to look for mile 14. That's all I'm thinking about. Mile 14. And then it's just when I get to 14, it's just I'm just going to get to mile 15. That's what I'm going to do. And so it's again, it's a mental exercise of just one more mile, one more mile, one more mile. When I get to about 18 miles, I don't know why this happens to me, um, but it seems like it's always mile 18. I hit the wall. And uh, what that simply means is uh, I'm out of gas. The tank is empty. Uh, I want to quit. Uh, I am absolutely exhausted at mile 18. My body is physically spent. And uh, now things get really, really tough. And I, I, I say to myself, all right, I'm going to stop looking for the next mile markers uh, and I'm going to start looking for the next half mile markers. And so I just look for the next half mile marker that, and I'm just trying to get to 18 and a half at that point in time because 19 seems way too far uh, to go. And, and I do this uh, for the next few miles, for about the next five miles, and, and it becomes really grueling and it becomes really painful. I, I mean, I, I start to uh, just experience uh, extraordinary pain throughout my body, every part of my body. Um, and at this point in time, I'm, I'm so dehydrated, even though I've stopped at the aid stations, uh, that I'm no longer really even sweating anymore. Uh, I can just feel this thick, uh, sticky, salty uh, paste all over my body. Uh, sometimes uh, salt chunks will drip down into my eyes and it'll burn. Uh, at this point in time, there are different parts of my body that are starting to go numb. Um, I'm, my mind is starting uh, to shut down a little bit and I'm not really uh, thinking very clearly. And so it's just this five miles of the next half mile, the next half mile, the next half mile. And by the time I get to mile 23, I am so done. I am so completely done. I can't even imagine running another half mile. And so I say to myself at mile 23, all right, breaking it down. I'm just going to run one more. I'm going to run a quarter mile. That's just one loop around the high school track, 400 yards. Now, back in the day, uh, I could run around a high school track in, I don't know, 50, 60 seconds. And so I would tell myself, that's so easy. Just, just get a quarter of a mile. Just run around the track once. That's all you got to do. Don't think about the next mile. Don't think about the next half mile. Just think about the next quarter of a mile. And so for mile 23 to 26, I'm just running around the track mentally in my head one lap at a time. And I am completely shut down uh, emotionally. Uh, I am so spent beyond anything uh, that I can even imagine. Most of my body I can't feel. I've got now muscle spasms, uh, which means I've, I'm starting to lose control uh, of, 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 um, of, of my coordination, which means my running form is really ugly and inefficient and uh, it's, it's just a, I'm just I'm just going I'm just going and so when I get to that 26 mile mark I'm thinking to myself two tenths of a mile one fifth of a mile which means that's not even one lap around the track 
But I have to tell you, the last two tenths of a marathon, it might as well be 100 miles because at that point in time, I cannot even begin to imagine running one-fifth of a mile because my body, my mind, every fiber of me is done, completely done. And so then I break it down one last time. And I say to myself, just take one more step. One more step one more step and what should take me about 45 seconds <laughs> probably takes me five minutes ten minutes those last two tenths of a mile and it's just this process of mentally saying Brian one more step one more step why do I continue to run marathons. I think it's because my, as my wife and my kids would tell you, I can be pretty stubborn. And once a year, I need to be broken down at every level to the point where I can only continue on uh, by taking one more step. And it's a reminder for me that this is how God oftentimes operates in our lives. When we're at the end of our rope, we don't feel like we have anything more left in us. God comes to us in the wilderness and says, I want you to just take one more step. Now we've just begun this journey in the wilderness of COVID-19. Now I know we'd like to think that we're at mile 20 or even mile 23 because some of us are tired and weary and worn out. But we may only be at the halfway mark. We may only be at mile five. I don't know. Maybe the gun just went off. I think a hundred years from now, people are going to look back and say, oh, a month into COVID-19, this is where uh, those people were in that journey in the wilderness. We don't know. Of course, God knows where we're at in this journey. But I believe wherever you're at in this journey and in the days ahead, I want to remind you that life is not a sprint. Life is a marathon. It's a journey that goes on and on and on. And if you've ever noticed that frequently as you go through life, you're going to spend a lot of time in the wilderness. This is just one wilderness experience because maybe the moment you get we, you, we, me, all of us get out of this wilderness, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're in civilization for a short time and then, all, and then we move back into another wilderness experience. And whenever we get in the wilderness, God comes to us, He meets us, and He speaks to us and He says, I am with you in the wilderness because I've got work uh, that I want to do in your life. I want to mold you. I want to shape you. It's not going to be easy. We're not going the route of the Via Maris, the way of the sea. We're going 
going to go the long and the windy roundabout road through the wilderness because God says, I want to prepare you for the promised land. And as we go through the wilderness, God invites us to daily surrender our lives. He says, I'm going to be with you there and I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to invite you to just take one more step. And God's faithful in the wilderness. He provides in the wilderness. Because eventually the Israelites, God's people, make it to the promised land. And when you and I daily make that, that uh, surrender to him, He'll be faithful to you and to me as he has been to his people for generations. And he'll get us to the promised land. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for stories of your people traveling through the wilderness, both metaphorically and literally. And God, here we are in the wilderness. And it feels wild, and it feels out of control, and it feels like uh, vast, and we don't know when it's going to end. But we believe you do. And so God, help us to live one day at a time, one step at a time, trusting in you, listening to you, surrendering to you. Because God, you are taking us on this amazing journey, this long roundabout way toward the promised land. So Father, help us to live today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.